2: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Joel Alden Schlosser, who is the author of Herodotus, Herodotus in the Anthropocene. This was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2020, and it is a fascinating kind of combination of thinking about our current situation with regard to climate change um, and trying to think through how to deal with that. Um, by using our friend Herodotus. Mm -hmm. Um, And for those of you who are not familiar with either the Anthropocene or Herodotus, Joel will tell us all about them. Um, So I'd like to welcome Joel to the New Books Network and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Joel.
1: Hi, Lily. Thanks so much for inviting me and really happy to be talking about Herodotus in the Anthropocene. Um, And it's Herodotus in the Anthropocene. Um, but I don't own the copyright on those those pronunciations, so you can pronounce it as you want. Um, my work for a long time has been trying to think a dialogue between ancient Greece and the present. And the reason why I began uh, that sort of dialogue was I was interested in democracy, um, democracy in America, democracy around the world, democracy now. And that led me to look at the origins of democracy in antiquity. Democracy comes from the ancient Greek word demokratia, the power of the people. The people is a demos, kratos is the power. And that was invented um, as a concept in uh, ancient Greece in the fifth century. And Herodotus is actually the, the one who describes the invention of the term and the first Greek writer that we have, um, the earliest, to use that um, specific uh, expression, demokratia. Um, so he's he's always been in my mind to some extent as one of these thinkers of that period, um, but the specific circumstances of writing this book and of coming to him are uh, more recent in origin than my beginning to study. Um, he, Herodotus was a historian of uh, and sort of the first person to write uh, a capacious history, not the first historian period about the period. Uh, of the war between the Persians and the Greeks in the fifth century before the beginning of the Common Era, he lived in the fourth century, and I like to imagine that he he grew up uh, among the ruins of this previous war, sort of like the first post-war generation. Uh, he um, was born in the area of what's now Western Turkey, the islands that were sort of mixing spot mixing pots between the East and the Persian Empire and other. Um, groups uh, that inhabited what is now Turkey all the way into Iran um, and the so-called West, although they didn't consider themselves the West, the Greek-speaking peoples. Um, And that was a conflict area between the Persians and the Greeks when they were uh, at war with one another. Um, He likely traveled all around the Mediterranean region. Uh, We don't know a lot about his biography, but based upon everything that he seems to know in his histories, uh, he visited probably North Africa, may have sa- sailed up the Nile, and definitely spent time in Athens and in other Greek-speaking cities. Um, he uh, is, is sort of credited with inventing the term history. He describes the work from the first page as a historia, which means an inquiry, um, most literally, there wasn't a genre of history. There were no history departments. Um, There's no nobody writing uh, dissertations or books about history. Um, but he became a sort of guiding light, so much so that Thucydides, who is the other famous historian who was uh, slightly younger, found it necessary to compare himself directly to Herodotus at the beginning of his history and say, I'm not telling stories the way Herodotus does. I'm giving you the real facts. Because Herodotus's history is uh, if those of you have read it would have discovered from the first couple of pages, filled with all sorts of wonderful stories and hilarious uh, anecdotes and comical observations and scientific reflections and musings and the gods are there and uh, the winds have presences. So there are all sorts of actors that aren't just human beings and famous you know, uh, famous people, bold-faced names. Um, so that's, that's a short version of, of him. And then how Herodotus and the Anthropocene came together Uh, was I found myself um, teaching a course on justice among nations, which was a course that uh, a professor of mine at Carleton had taught for a long time, and I was replacing him right when I finished my PhD. And that course had Thucydides as a founding text, and Thucydides is probably one of the most read of the ancient authors in political science. Certainly um, political theorists read him a lot, um, but also people studying international politics as the sort of founder of realism. And I proposed, I'd love to teach Herodotus alongside Thucydides just to sort of draw out this contrast. And I think Herodotus is such a imaginative thinker um, to help us think about international politics. Um, and he said, sure. And I ended up having the best teaching experience of my life. Uh, it brought together students from uh, the international relations major, students from philosophy, students from classics, students who are studying more political theory, and, we, and this was in the middle of, the, of Obama's surge in Afghanistan, and so there we were talking a lot about complexity and how do we understand, like, what are we doing if we're thinking about importing democracy or trying to replace a regime, and how can you understand another culture and all this difference, which Thucydides kind of waves his hand at. He says it's basically self-interest and material resources, right, realist. It's not quite that simple, but that's what it seems to be on the first glance. Um, whereas the Herodotus is all about the complexity of culture and the interactions among cultures, but also all the overlapping stories that cultures tell, um, how st- cultures are constituted through what people do, um, through their beliefs, um, through their terrain and their interaction with non-humans. And so that really prompted my, me to see, and my students too, how useful it was to think about the contemporary moment with Herodotus, uh, a thinker who is so devoted to um, storytelling, complexity, um, multiple causation, um, recognizing the limits of what, you, what was knowable or what he could know, not trying to claim a view from nowhere or a universal perspective. Um, that wasn't yet the Anthropocene, but as I kept working on Herodotus, uh, it made me realize that this sort of, the thinking that is um, coming up around What's called the Anthropocene really could benefit from, and was in already anticipating in many ways, this approach to thinking about politics. So quickly, what the Anthropocene is ten, tends to mean, um, it's it's a new a neologism to describe a new climactic and geological period that follows the Holocene, which is what we're in now, uh, or what we were in until we moved into the Anthropocene. And what it captures is the moment when human beings began to have direct and measurable effects um, on the environment and in in particular on the geological history. These are actually geological terms. And there's debate about when that began. A lot of people, probably the majority think sometime in the 19th century when you had mass burning of um, carbon-based fuels and that affected the atmosphere. But there's also a good argument that we really should locate it at the beginning of the first plantation economies because that's when there was huge reorganizations of land that led to all this overproduction and the advent of capitalism. Um, For me, what I'm interested in, particularly in that term, is how do we think about the relationship among human communities and non-human communities? And in particular, what kinds of inquiries are appropriate when we can't actually encompass or uh, name or understand everything? Um, And Herodotus both gives us a form of thinking about uh, politics that is beyond just the human and the sort of human-centered community. And he gives us concepts for starting to think about what, what the content of that politics would involve if it involves something more than just um, laws and institutions and the kinds of things that political scientists tend to study first.
2: And this is a complex book in trying to weave together um both the how and the why as you you say in the book um, but I wanted to take us just a small step back to get a little bit more into Herodotus not only in in context of Thucydides and 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 to some degree his role as a historian um but the fact that he integrates narrative uh and as opposed to Some of the other ancient um, scholars, um, because Socrates didn't write. And so we only have Plato who sort of scribes the dialogues. Um, But Aristotle's lectures were his students notes and so forth. So Herodotus actually wrote his histories. Mm -hmm. And in the histories that he wrote, they go in lots of different directions, which Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons, as you've noted, they were useful to look at, um, particularly in contrast to Thucydides, which is a kind of straight historical sort of perspective. Can you um, explain a little bit more for people who aren't as familiar as you are with Herodotus um, to some degree, how he has also come through to us now. Um, You, you note in the acknowledgements, of course, he, his histories play a major role in the book and the movie, the English patient. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but not everybody reads Herodotus. No, no, No? that's
1: correct. (laughs) Uh, And so yeah, he I mean, I think that his his reception is a whole other story um worth telling um and it's been told and inquired by other people. But sure. he's been insofar as he's been he's people have been reading him, primarily it's been by historians and ancient historians. And one of the amazing things about his text is that archaeologists have found things based upon studying Herodotus. Like, oh he says this is next to this thing, and then they go out and they dig and they find what he said was there. Um so that's one of the indications for some of these things that they know, uh, they're pretty sure that he was physically present about the thing that he was writing about. Um, but in political science and in political theory, um, Herodotus has, has not been read very much, um, barely talked about. It. And I think that's because as you said, the emphasis has so much been on forms that are, that seem like they're philosophy, they're making arguments. And that's a sort of prom- prominent, predominant form in political science and political theory. Uh, my teacher, Peter Eubin, his first book, um, The Tragedy of Political Theory, was subtitled The Road Not Taken. And that book is about how Greek tragedy leads to a different form of thinking about politics. And I think that Herodotus is another road not taken. Uh, it's a road that's not taken similar to tragedy, um, but a road that's quite different from the typical road of Aristotle and Plato and When I contrast them, I don't mean to demean them because I love them and spend a lot of time teaching and thinking about them, but I do think there are differences. And as you said, narrative is one of the differences. And one of the guiding lights for me in thinking about Herodotus was this passage from uh, Walter Benjamin's essay, The Storyteller, where he says, a narrative contains an amplitude that information lacks. This idea of amplitude to being a a form that can hold complexity and, and multiple interpretations which is actually, I think, more like reality. You know, We tend to think we can tell one story about this thing and like, that's the main story or that's the single story. Um, but Herodotus shares a trait with me, which is skepticism about any monocausal account. Like, everything has to have multiple causes. There are many reasons for things to happen and a story allows you to weave those together in a way that it's very hard to within with an argument. Um, the other dimension of that is that I think Herodotus was, like the tragedians, was writing for a public in a very different way from the philosophers. Um, the philosophers were writing texts, although the degree to which they were circulating, we don't know. I mean, Aristotle, these were likely lecture notes that were kept um, by students of his. Herodotus, it's clear that this was written for performance. So it was like tragedy. Somebody would be performing it out loud, probably a, you know, a, a gathering around some sort of a celebration. They'd say, tell me that story about Hippoclides. And uh Herodotus, the way he tells it, has all these phrases um, that are clearly linked to oral storytelling traditions, little repetitions and circular patterns. And a lot of his structure is, owes, um, is owed to Homer and the way in which Homer built these sort of poems out of oral traditions. So that sort of performative element and this desire to reach a public, um, I think, is one thing that Herodotus really is distinctive and that we can recapture in political theory. If we're gonna look at this and thinking about politics, this road not taken, the road not taken is one that is embracing complexity as opposed to parsimony and reduction. And it's also thinking about how are we always telling a story? I mean, an argument is a story. It's just one kind of story, often a kind of boring story. Uh, whereas you know, if we're, telling, if we're thinking about political theory much more generally as political theorists, whether we're studying the materials or producing them ourselves, what can we do differently? What, what would our, how would our understanding shift if we thought about ourselves as storytellers or as um, keepers of political stories or stories about the body politic?
2: Yeah, one of our colleagues has written this really fascinating book about how television shows are also telling stories about politics mm-hmm. and political science and political science in particular in the contemporary period. Um, uh, Dyson, I forgot what his first name is, Um, and he can now beat me up on Twitter for that. Um, (laughs) It goes to your point that um, politics is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, it just may be if you're making an, a policy argument on the floor of the United States Congress, it might not be as interesting as the the story you might see in a movie theater um, or something or, or in other, another venue. Um, so that the, the role of narrative, I think, is is very important. And you talk about Herodotus providing, as you say, the road to complexity in order to think about um the life that we will be having moving forward in in the world and this Mm -hmm. is about climate this is about humans but it's also about as you note in the book non-humans the other components that we think about um, or that we don't necessarily think about when we think about politics that when we have a hurricane season, um, that we have to respond in a, in a way to the hurricane season because of damage and and so forth, but that the hurricane is not seen as part of our politics. Mm-hmm. And, and to some degree, I, I'm finding your, your argument interesting in thinking about how we need to start recrafting our thinking. Um, And -hmm. that Herodotus can lead us in that direction. Can you explain a bit about how we might start recrafting our thinking and how Herodotus can lead us on that path?
1: Yeah, happily. Um, One way I've been thinking about this that's pretty concrete and isn't as much and is developed in the book. um, It isn't as developed in the book is around rivers. So Herodotus is very interested in not only the people, the Greek-speaking peoples, but peoples all around the Mediterranean. And two areas or groups in particular are Scyth, the Scythians in the north, uh, what is now like Romania, sort of northern Black Sea area up to Ukraine, and the, the Egyptians, um, and who are populated around the Nile and the Nile Delta. And with both of them, he describes how their civilizations depend upon reciprocal relationships with major rivers um, so it's the Boristhenes and uh, for the Scythians and the Nile River in egypt in Egypt um, the historian environmental historian Richard Wright has this wonderful way of talking about things like rivers um, where he just, and he has his book on the Columbia River called the organic machine that these are sources of energy and actually i just realized last year when i was a fellow at the simpson center university of washington that energy humanities is a whole field didn't didn't know that but it's in part i think inspired by white so these systems of energy and recognizing that the hurricane just like the you know, human communities and the fossil fuels we burn and you know our bodies that are metabolizing things they're all systems of energy and so if we contain that system of energy in our politic and recognize how that energy has been supporting certain forms of life and not supporting others, uh, we can actually deliberate about it and make decisions and not just sort of take it as something that's an external that we can use and not really think about how that use is then making other externals shift. Um, So in the case of Egypt, or maybe Scythia is a better example, actually, of this specific point, the Scythians come into the story because... They're sort of out there, and so empires that are uh, that are powerful decide that they want to invade the Scythians, and then the Scythians, you uh, outsmart them and avoid their avoid their rule. And the way that they do that, Herodotus describes, is they take the river as their ally, and he uses a verb or a word there, sumachos, like as if they were a, a human entity, um, like you would take another group of people as your ally. And taking them as their ally means that they are using the rivers as systems of energy that can, they can, they can separate themselves from the enemy and also trap the enemy with them because they have superior knowledge of the ways in which the rivers work. And that seems kind of like it's still somewhat inert, but the fact that they can move around so quickly is because they are able to draw resources from the river, move on the river. So they're, again, using it and not trying to conquer it. And then Carodotus is always drawing the contrast between these imperial powers, both Greek and Persian, that are trying to drain rivers and cross rivers and break rivers, basically treat them as obstacles, as externals. That's contrasted with treating them as part of your political community.
2: And you set up the book, as you note, um, in in the introduction to the book, in terms of the the how and the why, Um, in terms of thinking about Herodotus as a complex thinker, and that we can look at um, his histories in trying to sort through complexities the way that he did. But you also talk about how Herodotus can provide for us in a contemporary sort of situation, the way to think about politics. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And these are sort of complicated threads. And you sort of Uh, break them up throughout the book. Um, But I would like if you could sort of explain a little bit about the first, um, how again, Herodotus in the complexity, and in the stories that you've been sort of talking about, like this example with the river, um, that this is different from Thucydides in particular, but also from our contemporary way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about the the other, more, more, even more complicated way that Herodotus can guide us.
1: The the what, um, yeah. So in terms the
2: of the
1: in terms of the form, <laughs> I think Herodotus, although he's sort of thought about as an early historian, maybe is closest to an ethnographic anthropologist today, um, in his method. And that's not a method that yet has much of a place in political science or political theory. But I think it's starting to make inroads um, and. Uh, the more that it does, I think, the more herodotine will be become. We, we will become. And as somebody who is not an anthropologist, I'm describing this like as an aspiration. So anthropologists listen to it and they think, No, this isn't right. I want to be among you. Um, it's it's ethnographic anthropology because it's highly situated and dependent upon the conversations and observations that he himself is making. So in that sense, it's what political scientists would call qualitative. But while being qualitative, it's not analytically um, digested and sort of regurgitated, it's instead presented experientially and in this this form of the narrative. So the the two big ideas from Herodotus in terms of the how are one, what I call this sort of itinerary of inquiry. That is that the inquiry itself is conducted by a self-reflective person who's showing his work um, all the time and thus showing the limitations of what's knowable. Uh, From the research perspective, and then the other big idea is that it's always presented through the encountering and retelling stories, and in the form of a story, which again is a showing work kind of dimension of saying whatever information I'm presenting you, not pretending as if it's not just another story. Uh, Which doesn't mean that there aren't better and worse stories, because if a story can hold all this complexity uh, well without. Uh, forgetting or omitting certain things while still moving an audience to care and think about these things, then that's a good story. Um, And if it's not a good story, it's forgotten, right? Uh, It's not retold um, or it's quickly debunked, which Herodotus likes to do. He enjoys debunking stories.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Um, so you want me to move to the what?
2: Well, I, I wanted to also just piggyback on that and ask you a question because in your discussion of Herodotus as storyteller. Um, and somebody who also likes to debunk some of his stories, but also is is um drawing attention um to different components in the story uh what is Machiavelli's connection to Herodotus because I always think of Machiavelli as a storyteller in the same vein that he wants the reader, particularly in places like the Prince, to sort of see the complexity in the stories that he's telling. Um, and he also debunks other stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the the literal answer is I'm not sure. I don't think that Machiavelli knew Herodotus um, or was reading him. I don't remember if it had been translated into Latin at that point or not. Maybe not, um, but. More broadly, I think there's certainly a connection. I was smiling when you were saying that because I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's another reason I love Machiavelli and like don't like some of his other modern compatriots precisely because of this story. And I think one of the things that brings them together, although Machiavelli is much more clearly uh, writing for leaders and elites um, than Herodotus was, of course, he was by writing for the people, he was write, write, writing for the leaders of his time. Um, they're both oriented towards the public in their in the forms of the writing so it's not just that they are thinking about stories um, they're also telling stories as you said and trying to uh, you know keep their audiences with them um, and i think both of them are combining um, didacticism and um, entertainment uh, george saunders has this wonderful phrase about what he's trying to do in his writing he said, i want to uh, elicit amused engagement And I think that that's Herodotus too, and Machiavelli for that matter, that there's uh, maybe Herodotus even more than Machiavelli. He really is is trying to bring pleasure um, to his readers while also bringing them into a certain form of thought. Um, And I think up until recently, a lot of readers of Herodotus were either in the, I'm a historian, I'm interested in the facts that are contained there, and I'm going to criticize him when he makes mistakes, or I'm a literature person and I'm interested in sort of how his uh, how things work in the text as itself, and this sort of middle position of it's both of those together, is actually relatively recent um, that it's that it's kind of emerged as a way of reading Herodotus. Um, I mean, recent as in the last 50 years, and that's what's brought it closer to political theory too. Is bringing those two together?
2: Um, could I just ask you to repeat that last point because I think I lost you for a minute.
1: Yeah. So. <laughs> For a long time, Herodotus was either in the camp of he's just a historian, let's try to get the facts straight from him and correct him where he's made a mistake, or let's read him as a sort of piece of literature and like study the way he tells stories and sort of how he's appropriating, say, folk stories or oral traditions. And only recently has the study of him come to bring those together and say he can both be serious and amusing at the same time. And he can produce this sort of amused engagement in his uh, readership, and that to me is really interesting politically because he's not only speaking about politics he's speaking politics right he's do, he's practicing a politics of of writing um, and of and of speech and creating this text that's meant to circulate among citizens who were the ones who had power
2: and and that's also what I find intriguing in the way that you are asking us in the book to not only think about Herodotus as this kind of guide to complex thinking but that he is also going to be helping us think in political ways Mm -hmm. um and and that's it in in and of itself can also be confusing how do we think in political ways and how does Herodotus help us
1: yeah so I think that to think in a political way means thinking about how um all the potential um, participants in political practice or in um, forming and shaping community are um, affected or being um, convened or being included in different ways. And so, one of the like key terms that comes up in this in my book that is both figured in Herodotus and that I'm drawing out is this the idea of isegoria. And isegoria means the equal participation in speech. Um, it comes from the agora, which is the marketplace or the sort of convening space of a political community. And Herodotus is really conf- uh, concerned with what are practices uh, that allow for everyone to have an equal space in this agora, in this meeting place, in this middle place where we can come together and, and debate about things. And so, thinking about politics politically, you know, with the difference between the assembly, say, which only admits citizens, may, which are men uh, of some property and um, uh, uh, blood uh, relation to previous citizens, versus the agora, which has slaves and foreigners and animals and children uh, and women and you know everybody else who's not in the assembly. One is really doing politics politically for Rodotus, I think is much more agora focused, much more non-formal institutions, non-exclusive institutions focused. Um, but also asking the question of how well is this convening all of these voices? Um, and because Herodotus is, I, th- I think of him if you were th- if you were in a meeting with us, he's the sort of person who would say, "Who isn't in the room? You know, who is not part of this conversation? And could I bring that person in?" Uh, he would probably do that after telling us a really amusing story that would have us all falling out of our chairs laughing.
2: Um, and I, I, I did giggle a couple of times as I was reading your book. You're, you're one of the the, the few authors that, that has actually made me sort of smile as I was reading along. Um, Good. And not I, just
1: guffaw at the ridiculous claim or something like that.
2: <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask you the sort of the next question, um, which is also about how Herodotus thinks about, as you've you've noted a couple of times, the distinction also between the elites um, and 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 everybody else, but it's not just everybody human else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do we think about those who are in political positions and have what we would call political power. Um, and his critique, as you note, of sort of tyranny because that has was also part of what had come before in the war. Um, but also how there, there is relationship between leader, political leader or leaders and the world. Mm -hmm. Um, How can he help us think about these very complicated relationships?
1: That's a great question. And the critique of tyranny is something that is pervasive in Herodotus. And I actually like to imagine that's something that he developed in part in conversation with his friend Sophocles about sort of the it's not just that tyrants are bad because they oppress people or dominate them. It's because they think that they understand the world. Um, and they don't. And so their mistakes are both um, mistakes of justice, but also mistakes of knowledge or judgment. Um, and that gets to this, the question for Herodotus about what good leadership would look like. Um, and my friend Matt Landauer's book on uh, uh, the, un, what is, what's the name of that book? Uh, I just forgot the name. But his recent book is about counsel, dangerous counsel is what it's called. And he has a chapter on Herodotus, which really helped me as I was uh, working on this book which is that Herodotus is thematizing the problem of how do you give counsel to a leader in a position of authority? And he's showing us frequently how leaders fail to listen to good counsel. Because if you think about what I was just saying before your question about how do we convene people and non-people into a sort of space for the best possible isagoria, exchange of equal you know, opinions, that's going to involve counsel. There's, there are going to be people who make decisions, but how are they going to listen to things that they disagree with um, and heed good advice. And Herodotus shows us frequently how that fails, right? And how, uh, in, in two ways. One, it's it's the fault of the the the, pers- the ruler who doesn't like to listen to advice, but also it can be fought the fault of the people giving the advice because they're afraid of the consequences of either contradicting what the ruler wants or giving bad advice. Um, and I think Herodotus prompts us to think about structures political structures of assembly and deliberation um, and convening that can uh, allow for people to take risks uh, about uh, advice giving um, and be held accountable, potentially, but also that puts the people who are deciding, because ultimately, whether it's the majority or uh, an individual, there is going to be some sort of decision apparatus and mechanism, um, allows them to take counsel well.
2: And. One of the points that you also make in, in the course of the book, particularly, I believe this is um, in book, or chapter three, um, is the practice of nomos. Um, and, and you talk about how this is really the center of Herodotus' what we would call political theory, mm-hmm. even though he's not writing this in the way a traditional political theorist might. Um, And that this really involves the idea of practice, as opposed to kind of, um, you know, let's have somebody in charge and a judiciary and, you know, somebody who enforces the law and so on. And sorry about my weird inflections, Um, (laughs) you know, like a lawgiver. Um, (laughs) I'm not Moses, I guess. Uh, so how, how does the practice of nomos that you really dive into in chapter three form in Herodotus' thinking? And what can we take from that?
1: A lot of things. And nomoi, nomos is the, the center, I think, of what I'm wanting to draw out of Herodotus. It's a word that can capture both informal cultures and customs and traditions and laws that are actually written on stone and have been passed by you know the assembly. Um, and so what Herodotus does is he's using this term frequently and in a kind of loose way um, to talk about what it is that people live by, how they've come to various agreements or conventions for life and the and those conventions can be on a spectrum from informal to formal. And I think the reason one one of the reasons that's helpful is it's a reminder that, What we think of as law, as something that's out there, was made by human beings and can be remade by human beings. And Herodotus is a constructivist um, who believes that um, human communities are things that human beings are always making and remaking. And that's why nomoi and nomos is a practice. It's something that's done by collectives. Um, he's, He's much more interested in these participatory practices than in the Formal institutions, like you were naming of the three, you know, three uh, structures of government, and all these other things that the modern sort of subsequent thinkers get so obsessed with, like which how are we going to structure this, these things in just the right way so that we don't have to change them ever, because because Herodotus is emphasizing that change is always there, which is why at the beginning of his histories he says I am going to talk about great political communities and I am going to talk about small ones because the small become great and the great become small, everything is cycling and in flux him. Um, that means there's no final uh, institutional arrangement. Rather, communities both, and the ones that do it best are the ones that aren't restricting participation in the community um, to humans, um, are finding ways to gather and convene and deliberate about the best course of action forward. And freedom for Herodotus um, and flourishing ultimately come about through no more than our Best pursuing equality of participation, Isagoria. I think now what I've just said it's not explicit in Herodotus. This is me as political theorist, sort of pulling out what I would say to a political scientist. Um, and I've been in a lot of conversations with classicists about this text, and you know, they, they they would push back and say, "Well, where is that in this particular thing?" And it it's not. It's more of trying to articulate um, something distinctive that I think you know, somebody like Montesquieu maybe has a little sense of this in the tradition of political theory. Um, and certainly some contemporary thinkers, um, somebody like Bruno Latour um, is on to something like this. He's thinking about Nomoy somewhat, but it's pretty uh, this, it's pretty amazing in its distinctiveness vis-a-vis Herodotus in his own time. And I think it's still, because of the imagination of what can be involved and in, in what Nomoy can possibly be, that's still really um, distinctive today.
2: Um, and in in that regard, you know, we we've also talked about uh, the fact that Herodotus is working with narrative and through narrative. Um, and there are other political theorists, at least ones that I would talk about as political theorists, like Shakespeare. Um, mm-hmm. as, and, and of course, we did mention Machiavelli, who not only wrote The Prince and the Discourses, but also wrote a number of plays. Um, and as you've been noted also, um, that Herodotus was likely in conversation in certain respect with, um, Aristophanes. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so do we see a similar kind of capacity to think in this kind of complexity through other writers like Shakespeare per se, um, who are not writing, you know, traditional political theory tracks, mm-hmm. um, but are writing more like Herodotus.
1: Some of the contemporary um, writers, I mean, I could name literary figures that I've written about and have enjoyed and loved a lot. People like Joan Didion or Don DeLillo or Claudia Rankine, who I think all three of them are playing with form in ways that open up political thinking in new ways. Um, but among our set of uh, other academic uh and I mean that in a positive way, uh, writers. I think folks like uh, Lisa Wadine, Timothy Mitchell, uh, Anna Singh are all, those are people, some of them are in political science, some in anthropology, uh, who are recognizing that the domain of what we think of as thinkable as political scientists, you know, individuals, institutions, laws, is way too restricted. Um, and that the more, more effective forms for um Thinking about a much more expansive uh, domain are forms such as uh, Anna Singh is brilliant in like, innovating in this respect. You know, she's having more narrative chapters, having chapters that are sort of dictionaries. She's created this more recently, this whole online sort of repository of different ways of exploring the Anthropocene and visualizing it uh, beyond just the form of a book. Uh, I think that. One of the things that the Herodotus book is really going for and that in the wake of the Herodotus book, I feel really changed by is just the need for all of us to be more imaginative about form Um, because the forms that we assume uh, and we basically, many of us don't even think about, you know, I've got like a manuscript on my desk right now that I'm going to be analyzing. It's written in a form, right? This is what an article looks like. Um, That constrains our thinking uh, immensely. Uh, it means that there are only certain certain kinds of thoughts that are thinkable forms afford different forms of thinking Uh, and so i think the more that we can not only study but experiment with other forms other than uh, the the inherited form and as you point out like let's even talk about canonical figures and realize that their forms are way more than what we take them to be right this is i mean I and others, like like my my dear friend Jill Frank, are fighting this fight about Plato all the time. Where people say, "Well, Plato argues this," and we're both like, "Plato doesn't say anything." Like, yeah. you know, let's start with the form of the dialogue and like, what is that bringing you into? Um, that you know, there are so many of the thinkers across the canon even who are trying to innovate in ways that we've kind of obliterated because we see want to see them as all leading towards. This form of argument that is now what political theory involves, right? Uh, so I I'm I, I see myself as as finding Herodotus bringing Herodotus to that uh, that fray of of fighting for more imaginative and experimental forms for thinking about politics.
2: And that's what I I found that your book did, um, and I appreciate that, and so I thank you for that in terms of sort of bringing me to Herodotus who is not somebody that I had very much familiarity with um, and the complexity of his thinking in terms of also how do we think about the challenges of our day. Um, And so I would ask you, since that is the concluding chapter and you don't have to give spoilers away so people will still (laughs) buy the book. um, If you could talk to us a little bit about, what it is that Herodotus did teach you in thinking about the problems of the Anthropocene and the complexities of geological climate change that we are we are fundamentally facing in a more and more crisis situation.
1: Yeah, um, I think one of the big emphases for Herodotus, and this is something that I find myself returning to his text because of its inspirational value. Is his emphasis on the power of the people to remake their world, and that combined with the chastening of the people's belief in their power by virtue of the complexity of the world, um, and that that com- combination is both—you know—it's it's a little bit a Gramscian pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Like, let's be realistic about the complexity of the situation that we're dealing in but with but to harken back to gracely bogs um let's also remember the the grandeur and the um, miraculous sort of magnificent accomplishments of human beings in the past and that's what herodotus is trying to remember across the whole of his text human beings can do amazing things when they work collectively in particular and he loves stopping and marveling at um great wonders like the Samian mole harbor that was dug out. You just imagine the human labor that goes into some of these architectures that he thinks are so amazing and describes in detail. Remember those. Remember all that we're capable of while being real, realistic about the complexity of what we're undertaking. I think you know, there's so much easy nihilism and cynicism today about what we can and can't do while at the same time we're doing so much just without any sort of organized form or vision of what we want to be doing or achieving. Herodotus is a reminder of what is possible through collective um, action um, and the sort of vision of, you know, not only like wonderful things we can do, but like the absurdity of it, that there's something comic and this sort of human comedy um, that he's putting on display.
2: I've had in the last three days, probably 14 conversations about the fact that a year and a half ago, we were sitting here with a pandemic and no vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, I have been vaccinated, all the people who live in my house have been vaccinated. That is kind of stupendous. And I think goes to what you're talking about in terms of like, what is the crisis? And what is the accomplishment that can foil the crisis? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so that, that was, you know, this pandemic, which didn't exist three years ago, but global climate change does and continues to exist. And, and I think recrafting our thinking, as you note, about how we are situated in the world, and on the earth is important. Um, And I'm glad that you have brought Herodotus to the conversation for that um, what, what do you think he would think of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, he would, I mean, it's such a right moment for a Herodotine inquiry, because there are so many stories that can be tell, told about it. There are so many stories to retell that have been being told. Um, I think that, you know, his, his worldview, uh, being different from ours, the first question would be, how are the gods involved in this? <laughs> so what, what is this revenge for? Uh, what is this a response to? Um, and I think that's, you know, in a way, that we laugh at that question, but also, he's all he. One of the the habits of mind that I think he's given to me is to try to think behind the thing that I'm trying to explain. So, Dan Kahneman has that this idea of the "what you see is all the all you have" rule, and how that's such a misguided rule. We tend to think that, oh, everything that we're that we're seeing right here that we've taken as important is everything that there is. And Herodotus famously starts his history by saying. I'm interested in when the Greeks and the Persians first, you know, came into conflict, but I'm going to start with a Lydian, neither a Greek nor a Persian, and he tells all these stories about Croesus. So, like, what's the story behind COVID? Before the 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 before the pandemic, before we can point to this, you know, interaction between human and animal or whatever it is, I think that's where he would want to go, um, and whether that's A story of a particular actor at the WHO, you know, and their decisions about how to respond to these things, or it's a story about a particular practice of, you know, living animals and humans living next to each other that started 100 years ago, but now it's intensified. No, that's that story behind the story is the one that I think he would want to start with. And then he would find, oh, there's a there's a sort of recurrent pattern. Probably it's something like, Human beings think that they're in control of a situation, they have to understand the whole thing, and then it turns out that they don't, and there are unintended consequences. You know, or as Arendt would put it, human action is unpredictable and boundless, right? It just expands beyond itself. And so often that boundlessness or those unpredictable consequences have to do with the people, the non-humans that we think of, that we don't think of within our domain of of charting consequences for things.
2: And of course, this bat apparently was the problem.
1: This bat, uh, yeah, <laughs> you tell the bat story, yeah. <laughs> um,
2: so, Joel, what are you working on now? Uh,
1: a lot of different things. I mean, this this thing on rivers um, on Herodotus will likely come out in the next couple of years, um, but I say years because it's not really written. Um, the big project that I've that I've started um, is really thinking about fourth century politics more but through the lens of refusal. And it's kind of a continuation of the Socrates book, my previous book, um, in trying to understand how uh, philosophical practice has a political dimension in the context of democracy. But the difference between the Socrates book and this project is that I'm really interested in a decadent declining democracy because in the fourth century uh, is when Athens loses the the Peloponnesian War to Sparta. uh, There are no great civic uh, architectural projects. Uh, There's no Pericles. Um, And by the end of the 4th century, Alexander has taken over and essentially um, colonized Athens. Athens still has power to govern itself, but has no foreign policy as kind of a subject state. So it's during that period that, guess what? Cynicism, Stoicism, and Epicureanism are all invented in Athens. And a lot of the dominant story for that has been, these are retreats from the political, these are philosophies of withdrawal and finding stability and structure in a non-political, non-human sort of cosmological space. And I actually think that the story is it's a very different story. The story is actually these are refusals of a decadent politics and attempts to um, bring about and generate a more participatory um, and lively uh, sort of quasi-democratic or in- inchoately democratic political form. So I'm writing on Diogenes, the first cynic, and then there's going to be parts on um, the Stoics and Epicureans.
2: Well, I hope that you'll come on the New Books Network and talk to me about it when it comes
1: out. Yeah, I hope so, too, and that it's soon. <laughs> we'll see <laughs> lots of lots of other things afoot at the same time.
2: I totally understand
1: that,
2: <laughs> including the end of the semester as these things go. Yeah, uh, So, Joel, I would like to thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network to talk about Herodotus in the Anthropocene, Um, and this was published by University of Chicago Press in 2020. Do you have a brick-and-mortar store with an online presence where somebody can purchase this book?
1: I do. You can go to the Bryn Mawr College bookstore, and they have a faculty author site, which has my book right near the top, um, at, at a fair price, and they'll ship it to you.
2: Great. Thank you so much, Joel Alden Schlosser, for joining me today to talk about Herodotus in the Anthropocene. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Lily. Likewise. Look forward to the next time.